listen to this. Ticketmaster is working on new plans to make concerts safe during the COVID era. Check it out. According to Billboard, fans would need to prove they've been vaccinated or tested negative 24 hours before an event. Their status would appear on the Ticketmaster app. Come on, half the fun of going to a concert is not knowing what you're going to catch. Yeesh. Um, uh, so COVID's up all across the country. Cases, eh, that gets my attention a little, but there's so many ways to fudge that. Hospitalizations, okay, you're getting a little closer to something that you can count regularly. And then deaths, which is, when you're dead, you're dead. Deaths are way up all clear uh, across the country, and that's a problem. Elon Musk says there's something bogus going on with COVID tests. And we've heard from, well, I've heard from friends. I've, uh, I've uh, We've certainly gotten lots of texts and emails from people who've, you know, uh, they don't have it and they got a positive test, or they, they do have it and they got a negative test or whatever. I've been silenced. Um, uh, how many times have we heard explosive news as man has gotten COVID for a second time? And then almost every time it turns out to be a, a false positive test. Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX. And my favorite company of his that, that digs holes, the Boring Company. He says he was tested for coronavirus after experiencing cold-like symptoms, but after four tests, he still doesn't know if he's infected. Something extremely bogus is going on, he said. I was tested for four COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative. Two came back positive. Same machine, same test, same nurse. Wow. Uh-oh. Rapid antigen test from BD, he said. That's Becton Dickinson and Company. Um... That's uh, that's a coin. You flip it in the air. Yeah. He said the revenues from the tests are likely not bogus and very consistent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. Wow, you know, it, hmm. In medical diagnoses, Jack, I think you know this, test sensitivity is the ability of a test to correctly identify those with the disease. Sensitivity is the true positive rate. Test specificity is the ability of the test to correctly identify people without the disease, the true negative rate. And I wonder what the sensitivity and specificity, why can't they just say positive accuracy and negative accuracy? Well, here's the problem I have, though, and I've I've heard other people say those tests. Yeah. I've heard other people say this. Uh, well, well, this is you know there are some tests that just aren't that reliable, and they should be confirmed with a, one of the better tests, the PCR test. Well, if I, I'm not going to get, I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not going to get four tests in one day. I'm probably going to get one, and if it comes back negative, but I do have it, I'm not going to go get retested with the more uh, accurate test. No, people get the more accurate test, like President Trump did. When they come back and it shows you've got it, you you take another test to confirm it. But right. people aren't confirming their negative tests. If you're going to do that every time, well, then let's skip the first test. Sorry, you're not going to get your money and skip straight to the accurate test. Because well, obviously, if you're going to uh, double check it every time, positive or negative, that's pointless. What's the point? Exactly. Yeah, let's flip a coin, then do the real test. Well, and if obviously I'll if flip the, a coin, give you $100 and then take the real test. If the true positive rate is is not excellent, you're going to miss 5, 10, 20% of the positives, which is dangerous, can be dangerous. And, and so, I would also like to know this, So, because uh, we've gotten a bunch of texts about this. 
And a lot of you are more skeptical of the COVID virus than I am. I'm skeptical of the reaction. I'm not skeptical about the uh, the the existence of it to, to the extent a lot of you are. But um, the question of if you uh, if you get a preliminary test and you test positive, and then they go, oh, let's let's do the real test, and you test positive again, do those both count when you hear the big national number for uh, coronavirus cases? Probably both counted as this. probably. So does. How many people who get a yes result get multiple tests? Probably quite a few. Yeah, I don't. I don't. In know fact, that. that might be the most common thing. I think I've read that, but I can't. I can't remember, and I hate to be spouting misinformation. My guess would be is that it varies from place to place. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, but so you'd be double counting at least everybody that tests positive. Oh, uh, probably. Yeah, yeah. If your premise is correct, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the thing on the the COVID deal. It, it reminds me a lot of Joe McCarthy and communism in uh, in the 50s. Really, the, the 30s through the, the early 60s, but especially the 50s. Um, it was true. Both of these things were true. There were communists in the State Department in particular and throughout the federal government. They were moles. They were secret agents. They were closeted communists. That is absolutely true. And Joe McCarthy was a grandstanding jerk who ruined a lot of innocent people's lives. Both of those things are true. Now, your your modern uh, teachers and journalists, they only know half of that. They say, yeah, the red scare, (laughs) the paranoia, Joe McCarthy, McCarthyism, the roast. No, there were lots and lots of communists trying to tear down this country. And I think the coronavirus is the same thing. It's a terrible disease, hurts and kills an astounding number of people. It's incredibly uh, contagious, and it's wildly overblown in a lot of ways. Both of those things are true. Again, Elon Musk tested four times today. He said two tests came back negative, two came back positive, same machine, same test, same nurse. Makes you just want to throw your hands in the air and say F it, you know? What do you do with that information? I don't know. I don't. I really don't know what you do with that information. So they called Arizona for Joe Biden. Uh, not in my mind that there's any doubt who's going to be president come January 20th at noon. But it's amazing how close these states are. They called it at 49% to 49%. You know, it's uh, see, 668, 657. So you got, you know, what, 9,000 more votes. Nine. Yeah. Um so, so Man, that's close. It is amazing, percentage-wise, how close it is at Arizona, Georgia, um, Wisconsin, so many of these states, Pennsylvania, is absolutely amazing. The electoral win will look like a, you know, a really, really solid win, but you get into the percentages in the close states, and boy... Remember, Lon He Chen told us last week. He said it just it just killed. He was on Mitt Romney's campaign, and he said it just kills you emotionally when you lose. You think about all the things. You know, what if I'd have done this? What if we'd have done that? And I'm sure I don't know if Trump's the kind of guy that'll think about it. And there's no point in thinking about it. Yeah. But some yeah. of his campaign will, people will probably think, God, if we'd have just run this ad in Arizona, if we'd have visited one more time, you know, that sort of thing. Or if the candidate had X Y Z'd. Mm-hmm. We'd be in a hell of a lot better shape, but uh, we'll actually uh, be talking to Lon He Chen at the bottom of the hour. Fantastic. In uh, 20 minutes or so, so stay tuned for that. Plus, came across a uh, a rather long, and un- well, it's in the Atlantic, so naturally it was unnecessarily long, but it was an article about this historian um, 
and and how he predicts the rise and fall of of civilizations. Okay. And uh, and particularly the good days and bad days of them. And he doesn't have a lot of great news for you, for us, uh, right? Right. Uh, but uh, his the, his methods and the way he approaches it and stuff, I found it really interesting. And if you're into history at all, you might as well. Uh, we have some coronavirus news. Oh, gosh dang it. Oh, <laughs> Pete Boot Edge Edge and his benign Midwestern nice guy act. Phony. <laughs> oh, Stay with us for that. Oh, Much more to come. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Trying to think of what I want to talk to Lon He Chen about. Such a great uh, mind when it comes to politics. I was thinking something like big picture as opposed to the the granular, pointless, nobody will remember it crap that everybody talks about. That way obsessiveness. Yeah. Well, this is kind of big picture here. I don't know how big a picture you want, but we can talk about that. Love Lon He and love talking to him. Oh, also, speaking of things Maybe still Maybe why do bad things happen to good people? That oh, might boy. be my opening question. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you need, you need, my friends, to go to armstrongandgetty.com. We have some great new A&G gear uh, just in time for your Christmas gifting, um, including the brand new masks, uh, which are super cool. It's now my go-to mask. It just, it's got the great feel, the great fit, the great uh, weight. The high quality. I see people are in the, doing the thing where they pull the little thin cloth thing up over your nose that they've now determined actually is worse than nothing. Yes. Yes. Boy. And we have some of those too. Do we? <laughs> yes. Um, also, the Air Force, uh, the Armstrong and Getty, the, the, our logo with the wings, we call the Air Force logo, and we have a jog bra with that logo on it. Um, I, I, I have no idea how it makes your breasts feel, as I have not worn it. I might get one. I'm getting a little bouncy. Um, and then the Air Force boxer briefs. Which made Judy and I guffaw when we saw them. Have you seen them, Sean? I have not. The logo is right there on the. And it's my understanding there's a microphone on the back. Right, right I on feel your. Like hiney. we should have inverted those. I don't. I don't know. Um, and it just <laughs> let's go no further on that discussion. Again, that's ArmstrongandGetty.com. So, it's a mood setter. So they got me. <laughs> they got me. The Atlantic. The the clickbaity headline was the next decade could be even worse. And I thought, you best, what? The next decade could be worse than than the current one in terms of the United States and and what's going on. And the article's all about this guy, Peter Turchin, Russian-American, one of the, he's a professor, he's one of the world's greatest experts on pine beetles. He was a guy who brought to etymology the idea that, all right, yeah, you, you collect specimens, you put a pin through them, you describe how many legs there are. Let's talk about their their lives and the way they spread and the way they die off and the way they ruin forests. And let's make it mathematical. Let's build models for infestations and things like that so we can predict it better. So he he was a real innovator in bringing math, mathematical models to the insect world. And then he decided he'd figured out everything he wanted to figure out about the field and he was bored. So he switched to history. And interesting. And so. But he wanted to do the same thing, bring mathematical modeling to history, the rise and fall of civilizations, 
how they thrive, what makes them better or worse at different times in their history. Now, I will. There are some caveats here because you know, garbage in, garbage out, as they say in the data industry. Nate Silver knows this better than anybody these days. But um, it, what they've done, what he and his team have done, they've compiled ten thousand years of human civilization history. Particular aspects of it uh, emphasized. And then they build these mathematical models for what's going to go on. So that's that's the, the long and short of it. The main problems, he says, are a dark trio of social maladies. One, a bloated elite class ding, um, with too few elite jobs to go around. Like, for instance, lots and lots of people with pretty impressive college degrees but nowhere to put them nowhere to nothing to do with them so that's one declining living standards among the general population hmm and a government that can't cover its financial positions well now his models that track these factors in other societies across history i'm quoting the article here by graham wood who did a pretty good job um, they're too complicated to explain in a non-technical publication, but they've succeeded in impressing uh, all sorts of different people, and they name-check some folks. Um, in 10,000 years' worth of data, Turchin, the scientists believe he's found iron laws that dictate the fate of human societies, and uh, the fate of our own society is not going to be pretty, at least in the near term. He says it's too late. The problems are deep and structural, not the type that the tedious process of democratic change can fix in time. It's It's... You're heading directly for an iceberg, and the crew is discussing which way to turn. And you have to turn now, and now is already passed, he says, to avoid um, the problems. We're almost guaranteed five hellish years, he predicts, and likely a decade or more. The problem, he says, is that there are too many people like me. You are ruling class, he says, with no more rancor than if he had formed me that I had brown hair. Um, and uh, he talks about elite overproduction in Saudi Arabia, where princes and princesses are born faster than royal roles can be created for them. In the U.S., elites overproduce themselves through economic and educational upward mobility. More and more people get rich. More and more people get educated. Neither of those sounds so bad on their own. The problem begins when money and Harvard degrees become like royal titles in Saudi Arabia. If a, If lots of them have power, but only some of them have real power... The ones who don't have power eventually turn on the ones who do. Interesting. And he, and he points out Trump, Bannon, Steve Bannon, who's an extremely bright, educated, impressive guy, um, and he's become an uh, anti-elite. Uh, and then he goes into you know all sorts of people graduating from Harvard Business Schools, and it was funny. So I read this thing. It's it's a beast. It's long. Um, and then I start flipping for more news to talk about. First article I come across in the Wall Street Journal, the following headline, Goldman Sachs 60 new partners are the happiest people on Wall Street today. Bloated, top-heavy, and the government runs out of money to bribe people into staying calm as their living standards are declining. Uh, That sounds pretty accurate. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Oh, you know what? I forgot to give this to Hanson if you want to read the whole thing. Uh, again, if you're into history, it's a it's a pretty cool read. That um, is interesting. I'm not here to worship the guy. There's some, like, head-scratching things he says, but 
You know, it's science is almost right before it's right. Yeah. So I think this guy is in that stage. Well, I had that quote last week, and I don't remember who it was from, about how each successful uh, empire, civilization, call it what you want to call it, the, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Ottomans, the whoever, uh, has always thought, well, we're not going to fall like those, those that did 2,000 years ago. I mean, we've figured out a permanent way to, to, say, to stay successful. Mm-hmm. But every one of those thought that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really hubris to think. But well, this is different. This is the modern times, and this will just stay. this will last forever. Right, right. You know, the other interesting thing he says about historians is that historians have always looked very specifically at people and periods and events and elections and that sort of stuff. And what he's saying is those things matter. They cause little wiggles in the the line, but the waves of history, those wiggles, they. Ah. They get really small. That's what I've always thought. When you view them from, say, 10,000 years perspective. I'll have to read that. That's in the Atlantic? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm trying to think if there's anything else to share. It's like 20 pages long, the way I printed it out. That's right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, That was pretty big picture right there. So maybe we won't go big picture with Lon Hee Chan anyway. medium picture. Nobody ever goes medium picture. (laughs) That's true. It's granular or big picture. Right. From 30,000 feet to the ground. How about in between? Right. Lon Hee Chan next. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I think most of this is a kind of a beltway phenomena. I was just looking at a New York Times story from December 13th, uh, 2000. That's when the transition funds were released and the Bush administration got their office space and so forth. You know, we're, we're a month away from that. But so long as what the president is asking is legal, he may ask for it in intemperate way, I don't understand why it's not better just let the process pay out. The courts are gonna act pretty quickly, right? They're not gonna let this drag on forever. So I think we're gonna get answers pretty quickly. There's nothing to see here, and I refuse to engage the conversation. <laughs> oh, come on, it's fun. Not fun for me. Lonnie Chan is the Dave and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, the host of the podcast Crossing Lines with Lonnie Chen. Lonnie, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, poor Jack, uh, delusional, thinks that everything's going to work out fine when clearly Trump is the new Hitler and trying to hold on to power. Uh, don't you agree? <laughs> Boy, with a question like that, I don't know about the answer. Um, you, you know, look, I think the this transition process has been really interesting to me because I, I actually worked pretty extensively on a couple of transitions uh, in the past. Cool. And, you know, the, the reality is, uh, you know, so I, I don't know who that was that was speaking there in that clip you guys it's played. Bill but, McGurn but, from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, look, some of the uh, the idea that you know, well, there can be no transition without a transition, you know, formal transition space and formal transition funding, and obviously that's not true, right? There's a lot of stuff going on, and it's a very competent team they have over there. They're you know doing what they can to facilitate that transition. Obviously, at some point, we are going to get concerned about. Uh, Biden not getting access to to you know more sensitive intelligence information things that would prepare the team, but but I think we are still probably a couple of weeks away from that. We do want to see a smooth transition of power, but sometimes sure. this stuff can get sensationalized. Yeah, I'd say. Well, how about this end of it though? This is from Ryan Liz in Politico. 
Discouraging signs about the Biden team and press access so far. No regular transition briefings. No readouts of calls with foreign leaders. Um, uh, no open press access to the candidate and his people. This is a break with tradition. Well, yeah, I mean, the the reality is that uh, he may be the only one that expresses that concern. I mean, some of the media will express that concern, but but pretty obviously what they've decided is that they're going to try and cover this transition in the most favorable way possible. Um, but, yeah, look, it's important for us to be hearing about what foreign leaders Biden is talking to, what U- U.S. leaders Biden is talking to, what the plans are that they're putting in place, uh, you know, having some access to the candidate during not the candidate. Now, the president elect, I guess, during the transition is important. That is something that traditionally we've seen. By the way, even Donald Trump during his transition uh, and his team were, were pretty accessible to the media. So let, let's hope that that's just a blip and not an actual trend. But, well, uh, you know, even it, if it were a trend, he's the only one writing about it. probably. Yeah, but it's at some point. So you run a campaign where you don't do press conferences or talk to anybody. And then you run a transition where you don't do press conferences or talk to anybody. At some point, it's just the lifestyle, isn't it? I wonder if that's what we're, we're going to be looking at. Well, yeah, I hope not, because it, this is sort of one of the things that, that people occasionally gave Donald Trump a hard time about, which was that, you know, his White House didn't do the regular press briefings as often. Uh, you know, the president himself was pretty accessible because he, he liked I think he, he likes being accessible. He likes having what they call chopper talk, uh, which is where he just basically, you know, let, let, lets her rip in terms of answering questions on the way out of the White House. But let's hope that uh, that the Biden White House makes itself available, that they're going to be transparent, because you're right. At some point, you do worry that a campaign that essentially would run out of a basement that didn't have very much accessibility during the course of the campaign just sort of reverts to the norm and does what it's comfortable with. But I don't, I don't think that'd be good for them, and I don't think it'd be good for American democracy either. What's your gut feeling? Uh, do you think they're being hyper-cautious just for uh, standard-issue political reasons or because the president-elect really can't handle uh, much availability. No, I, look, I think they're being cautious both because, you know, that's the, the procedure of the time. You know, I think with COVID, they're trying to keep him relatively sequestered. They don't have you know public events. They're trying to be cautious about that. I think part of it is also that, you know, m- maybe this is being too charitable, but I feel like they also, you know, they're trying to, to give Trump and his team a little bit of space. Uh, you know, while we're still at this very front end of the transition, uh, I don't think it's because they can't handle it. I think, you know, look, I think the team is going to be very competent. Biden himself, obviously, uh, you know, we'll have to see how he holds up physically. He seems to be doing fine, uh, even, even although he hasn't had to campaign very much. He seems to be doing fine. So we'll see. We'll see how it all turns out. What do you wish people would talk about? Because we 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 try to stay away from stories. My my own personal theory is if nobody's going to care about this in a week, why would I talk about it today? I just I don't yeah. see the point. Um, uh, but what do you wish people would talk about? Well, you know, my my instinct is always I wish we'd talk a little bit more about what the what the policy environment's going to look like and what are the things Joe Biden's actually going to try and do when when we get to January. I mean, there's been some reporting on how much executive action he's going to take in the first couple of days to overturn things Trump has done. I think that's significant. You know, the fact that he wants to reenter the Paris climate accord, I think that's significant. Um, some of what we're hearing about the early signs around, are we going to get another coronavirus relief package? I think that's really important. Um, and, and then the other thing I'll say is, you know, in the longer run here, we still don't know what's going to happen with the Senate. 
And, and I get that that's like a one-month story, but it's still a really important story, right? Whether Republicans control the Senate or not, that's going to that's gonna determine a lot in terms of what Biden can and can't do going forward. You know, we've talked about my theory, which is that a Republican Senate wouldn't be awful for Biden. In fact, I think it'd be yeah. pretty good. Um, and that outcome is still very much hanging in the balance based on what happened in Georgia on January the 5th. Uh, how much vote fraud is there in America, Lonnie, these days? You know, I think it's safe to say that there are clearly incidents of, of fraud. There are clearly incidents of where people are are doing things they're not supposed to be doing. Is it widespread enough? Is it systemic enough that it influences the outcome of the presidential election? There I am far more skeptical, and I, and I, and I just don't see it. But that having been said, here's the problem we have in this conversation now, guys, is that Everyone tries to take the extreme position, right? So you hear a lot of, you know, liberal left-wing commentators out there saying, you know, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Vote fraud never happens. It doesn't happen at all. And, and then you've got, you know, some people who support the president saying, well, vote fraud is everything. It's determined the entire outcome of the election. It's resulted in millions of votes. Uh, and, and I don't think either side has really got the right answer here. Uh, I think the answer is we have to continue to make our system more secure. We have to continue to figure out ways to make sure that people who are voting are legally eligible to vote. And, and I do think integrity, the integrity of the election is very important. That having been said, the, the idea that there is some like widespread coup one way or the other, uh, I, I just don't buy it. How? I just don't think it is a huge widespread phenomenon, nor do I think that it never happens. So we've got to figure out how to address the incidences where it does and ensuring people trust that those who vote have voted legally and properly. How much confidence do you have going forward in the idea of we mail out ballots to people? So California was whether the, they ask for them or not, right? So California was the first state in the country, and then others followed to to, to say Gavin Newsom announced we're going mail, to mail a ballot to every you know every eligible anybody over the age of eighteen. Everybody's going to get a ballot. And so I was listening to a report this morning in which they said that is going to become the norm. The only question was, will there be any role for in person voting? And the conclusion sort of was, well, as we have to spend more money on the on the sending out the ballot part of it, that money will be taken away from in-person voting, and that's just going to go away. So there is an effort by some to make that the norm going forward. Are you comfortable with that as a way to vote, or we just mail out ballots to everybody? It's certainly a change. Yeah, I, I don't like that, that kind of system where, where everybody, regardless of whether we verified their interests or, or, their, or their existence or their, or their sentience, uh, before an election, you know, the, the notion that we just simply mail ballots to everyone, I'm, I'm not so sure that's a great idea. What I would prefer is this. I would prefer, first of all, of course, if you're able to request a ballot and you want to mail your ballot in, you absolutely should be allowed to do that. A, B, let's make early voting more plentiful and available. If people want to vote in person early or submit their ballot early, I think we should have mechanisms for that. And then, yes, we should continue to support in-person voting. Look, we're hopefully not going to have a pandemic to deal with every single time we have a general election. And I can understand wanting to make special accommodations this year because of COVID-19. I, I totally get that. But going forward, we need to be a little bit smarter about how we ensure people are able to vote, as I said earlier, safely, securely. And so the system has integrity. I think those are all important things. So yeah, I would well. love to see, I'd love to see more ways of, of, of getting people to the, to the polls in person safely i think that is still the best way to vote yeah well listening to election officials this morning in california that's not the direction they're going and my concern would be it then it's going to be a, come a game at which state is the best at rigging their mail-in voting 
You know, Texas and North Carolina, the Republicans will have the upper hand in in phoning up yep. stuff, and in California and New York, the Democrats, and it'll just be that'll be the contest: who's the best at phoning up an election. What you said about election integrity is, I think, the nation's number one most urgent task going forward. Because if we don't have that, we're doomed. Well, yeah, and and look, you've got a lot of people who. Um, in this particular election, sincerely uh, had questions about, you know, how, how was it that uh, that Joe Biden was behind so much on election night and the result can look so different? I, I'm not suggesting that there was malfeasance. I'm not suggesting that there were things that were that were fishy. What I am suggesting is there is a basic imaging problem here. There is a basic problem where you have people asking these questions. And, yes, it doesn't help when when politicians are trying to sow this kind of you know, discord in, in the electorate. I, I, that I don't like either. But my point is we need to figure out a way to make this system one that people can say, yeah, you know what? Like my vote was counted. It was decided fairly. I don't like the outcome. I don't disagree with the outcome, but I can respect the outcome because I respect the process. That's what we need to get to as a country. David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, host of the excellent podcast Crossing Lines with Lon He Chen. Lon He, great to talk as always. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. So it was an opportunity. The pandemic was an opportunity for people who've wanted, you know, motor voter or mail out ballots or whatever for all these years. You could pull it off in a pandemic. You had perfect cover. Well, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Right. You got a pandemic. You can't everybody have gathered it's together. for everyone's safety. And now they're going to make it permanent. Mm-hmm. And they're even talking openly about ending voting in person. You know, over time, money will have to come out of that. There's only so much money, and I would imagine voting in person will go away. Already, a week after the presidential election, California, the biggest state, which usually leads other states, is saying, we're just going to go to all mail-out ballots. And then I think you'll have, like I said, a contest in red states and blue states over who can phone it up the best. Right. That'll be the best at collecting uh, ballots as they hit the old folks' home and the apartment complex. You know, who's, the college dorms. Who, who's the best at going around exactly to, to places of high population density and saying, uh, listen, if the previous uh, resident, if you got a, a ballot for the previous resident, you can give it to me. God, that seems like a horrible idea. Oh, it is a horrible idea. It will lead to horrific divisions and violence if okay. we permit it to go forward. And the governors who are in favor of that, Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo, the usual uh, suspects, you, you are sacrificing this country for your short-term political gains. Well, they have named who's going to be the halftime show at this year's Super Bowl. This season's Super Bowl. It's actually next year. It's exciting, isn't it? You two, Elton John, Prince, whoever. (laughs) If you can get Tom Petty to show up, then I'll watch. With Prince. That'd be a good show. That'd be a good show. Uh, That and other stuff on the way. Armstrong and Getty. STE. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I don't care if Monday's blue, Tuesday's gray, and Wednesday too. Thursday, I don't care about you. The hope was that the long-dead Pacific gray whale would be almost disintegrated by the blast. 
and that any small pieces still around after the explosion would be taken care of by seagulls and other scavengers. Indeed, the seagulls had been standing nearby all day. The dynamite was buried primarily on the leeward side of the big mammal, so as most of the remains would be blown toward the sea. About 75 bystanders, most of them residents who had first found the whale to be an object of curiosity before they tired of its smell, were moved back a quarter of a mile away. The sand dunes there were covered with spectators and land blubber newsmen shortly to become land blubber newsmen, with the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. The 50th anniversary of the infamous Florence whale explosion was yesterday. Why'd the whale explode? Uh, they packed it with dynamite. <laughs> it was I a, thought that was the best way to get rid of it? Uh, yeah, it was a big, giant, it was an eight-ton sperm whale. Wow, that's huge. That had washed ashore um, and, and was stinking badly. And, um, and they packed it with uh, 24 cases of dynamite to blow it up. And instead of just vaporizing it and, and blowing it into the sea, it just went everywhere. Big chunks of blubber. And uh, that was the voice of Paul Lindman, who is a f- f- fabulous fellow. We've met Paul and talked about it, had talked to him about it. He uh, wrote a book about the exploding whale. And he says, I was asked about it virtually every day of my life or commented on it by every day by everybody, strangers alike. That would have been uh, pre-YouTube and Internet and obviously all that. But it was one of the first viral videos. Yeah, well, and actually when YouTube became a thing, it uh, became a huge viral hit. And uh, his, his partner, his reporting partner, says to have it live on as a story still on the Internet after 50 years is just amazing. So in retrospect, do the people think that was a good idea or a bad idea to blow up the whale like that? It was funny. <laughs> would you do it a different way now? I think it's generally agreed they would do it a different way, yeah. Hmm. For the anniversary, the Oregon Historical Society released a remastered version of the 16-millimeter print original, which has been under the museum's care since the 1980s. Um, it includes uh, Lindman's iconic closing line, um, which we don't have for some reason. He said, it might be concluded that should a whale ever wash ashore in Lane County again, those in charge will not only remember what to do, they'll certainly remember what not to do. You'd hate to die because you got hit on the head by a giant chunk of whale blubber. You would. Uh, it's not a caveman death. It's more like an Eskimo death. Next hour, there are some concerns that the people Joe Biden's putting in charge of his coronavirus team are way to the extreme on the whole shutdown side of things, specifically around schools. Even the New York Times is concerned about that. So wow. More on that yeah, later. Yeah. Big announcement has been made, Joe. You know, around here, we care a lot about who the Super Bowl halftime entertainment is. Pardon me? And it has been announced that it will be a musical group. I guess it's a dude called The Weeknd. Is he a dude or a group? It's a single guy, yeah. The Weeknd. Uh, dude. The Weeknd. There is no, the W-E-E-K-N-D. So has weekend. He, he's been weakened, like, by disease? But it's no, no, W-E-E-K, like Weeknd. Yeah, Weeknd. Weekend. But he doesn't spell out end in his okay, name. But am I supposed to say that? I see that's how I say it. I was not okay. aware of that before, but well, I do no, I've see that. I've always heard it weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's probably the per- okay. same way you don't believe in silent letters. Right. I don't believe in invisible ones. Right. Amen to that. <laughs> um, I, I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live once, and he was fine. And he's on some songs my kids like, like he shows up doing various things. Uh, um, he has. Weekend. 
Yeah, yeah, very, very big. I, I I would preview all his music before allowing youngsters to listen to it. They tend to be... Yeah, uh, no, no, we, we only catch him through, like, he's a guest yeah, yeah, rapper yeah. or something. Does he do that Everybody's Working for the Weekend song? He does <laughs> no, not. No, no. Is that him? So the Super Bowl will not have people in the stands, though, right? That'll be, uh, for a big chunk of America, their first... Running into a major sporting event with the fake crowd noise and no people yeah. actually there. I don't know. Is it no people or is it a few people? I, don't I, know. I haven't actually heard. God, there's a lot of money involved in having some people there. Oh yeah, but it won't be many people, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And uh, the halftime show will be uh, most of us take it in on the TV anyway, to the extent that we do. Right. Uh, so the game is being played at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, I believe. So that would lead me to believe there will probably be more people than if it was in, say, California, something like that. Yeah, I don't know how Southern Florida is right now. They had a hell of a well, go. I know. I was just looking at the map of states that have mask mandates, uh, partial mask mandates, or no rules. And Florida is a no rules for masks state currently. I was just, I was kind of interested in what states are what. It's not completely predictable. The states. Um, uh, where, it's, you know, the whole state, you have to wear a mask everywhere you go in public. Some states got no rules whatsoever. A mm-hmm. lot of states. Yeah. And then states in between. Now, Joe Biden's talking about a national mask mandate as soon as he takes office, which... But everybody knows he can't do that. Well, he's going to, you know, encourage it in a variety of ways. Yeah. Some of which are uh, definitely strong army. Yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, next hour, if you can stay tuned for next hour, do it, because I have a truly innovative uh, COVID-19 report for you. Don't roll your eyes. Um, if you're not able to do that, just uh, download the podcast later at armstrongandgetty.com. Get yourself some swag while you're there. Got some good new swag. Armstrong and Getty.